Good morning. Don already pointed out, but as one testament to God's faithfulness, I see Mr. David Weeb and Gordon Evangeline are all here this morning, and that is worth being thankful for. Good to see you all. We're continuing our series that we started last week for summer. We'll pause the Matthew series and we'll go back into it in fall. Uh, but we're doing a series that I've titled A House for My Name. And the reason I picked that name is because we want to look at what God is doing in his creation. And what is God's creation all about in the first place? And last week, I tried to point our attention to true north, which is God's glory for himself. We sometimes get so caught up in living our own lives that we start to think that the world is about us or even that our lives are about us. And we looked at Psalm 145 to show that all things ultimately are designed to be to the glory of God. And again, to just stop, one thought that amazes me that we maybe should remind ourselves of week in and week out is that when God creates, he creates out of nothing. He creates ex nihilo. He thinks things into being. And so everyone here this morning exists as God's thought. And if that does not make you feel subservient to God, I can't help you further than that. Okay? God creates and upholds all things for his glory. God did not create because he was bored or because he needed a friend, that he was lonely. God was perfectly happy in a triune relationship of all three persons of mutual delight, mutual joy, mutual love. There is no need in God that he needs us. Rather, why create? God is so overcome with zeal for himself. God loves himself and his own glory so much that it spills over into a theater and into an audience. And it didn't take that audience long to turn this whole thing into a crash. But that's what we're here for. And as we look at the series, today we're going to look at the church. We're going to look at manhood and womanhood and family as we go on. All important things that God is showing about himself and his purposes in his creation. But the only proper starting point, again, is what we looked at last week. And if you missed it, then go back and start at square one. So last week we did see that the glory of God himself is the most central, most foundational, and the controlling theme for all of scripture and all of life. God's zeal for his own holiness and his own supremacy and his own fame and his own self-love is the controlling theme of everything. And it's also the controlling theme for every and any endeavor you're fine, your hands find to pick up. God created man to be an audience and he created the cosmos to be the theater of his glory. And God created man and put him in a garden. And in Hebrews we learn that actually creation is a copy of the original things. The original things are with God in heaven. And everything on this earth is a copy of that. And so even the garden itself is a copy of the presence of God. And God gave man a job to do. He gave him a task. And it wasn't just to maintain things, but to have dominion over it. To do things with it. To heavenize it. God, this is what it means to have dominion. And so man was made to be a sort of deputy for God. He had God's instructions on how to take raw materials and improve them and learn things about God to fill the earth with godly seed and the knowledge of the Lord so that God could be glorified in every last square inch of this created theater of glory. 
But unfortunately, rather than passing the test in this probation and living up to his job, living up to his task that he was designed for, man chose instead to believe a lie. And he fell. And with him fell all his seed. Everyone in this room fell with our first parents. It was pride that caused Satan to fall, and it was pride that caused man to fall. And in both cases, the creature decided that he was wiser than his creator. He claimed autonomy, and as a result, he was cast into the darkness. And I want to think about that even in your own life. When sin tempts, when we start looking or considering sin, think of what it is. Every time we give in to the temptation to sin, what you are saying is with your first parents and with the serpent, I know better than God. Every act of sin is saying, I hate God, I know better. I am free to defy him. It is an act of autonomy. And that's how we got in this problem in the first place. And this is why the Bible speaks of outer darkness. Remember, man was created as an image bearer. So like sun and moon is the relationship of God and man. And so remember, if the moon starts to think, you know what, I'm not happy just reflecting light. That isn't a high enough position for me. After all, the sun gets to emit light and I'm just over here being a moon, just reflecting light. If the moon then decides, I'm going to divorce myself from the sun, he will not grow in brightness. He will grow from reflected glory, which is real glory, to outer darkness. And this is what happens when man is unsatisfied with his place before God. If we say we will divorce ourselves, I want more glory. I'm going to make myself God of my life. You will not move to greater glory. You will move from reflected glory to the outer darkness. You have cut yourself off from meaning. You have cut yourself off from purpose and from understanding. As God read about in Hosea this morning, the people are blind. This is sin, cutting yourself off. And the fall brought radical corruption to this creation. It marred the image of God and man, and it also cursed the natural world around us. So even things that we don't directly connect with sin, like weeds or malaria, or drought, or hurricanes, and cancer, are all things that we talk about as though they're natural, because that's what we've observed in nature, but they are not natural. None of those things are natural. None of them actually belong here. They are a curse on what is natural. And so when we look at the world around us, we can see both the beauty and the perfection and the glory of the original design, and right alongside it, we also observe the pain and the disappointment that this design is clearly not working the way it was meant to. And so in one sense, the people that are into all natural everything are kind of onto something. They see how things should be in an unfallen world and they expect it to work. And that's probably uh, the shortcoming. So they'll observe, for example, that there should be this intimate hormonal feedback loop between a newborn baby and her mother and the mother's body and the baby's body are in sync with each other, and the mother's always producing just the right amount of milk to nourish her little child. Or you'll get into animal husbandry, and you'll realize that the droplets of moisture on a cow's muzzle contain compounds that help grass to regrow after it's been cut short. Does that start to seem like design? Okay, it, it, it sure looks like design to me. This is how it should work. Cows eat grass, and by eating it, they're stimulating more growth. Or think about something mundane that we just take for granted. In this room, there's hundreds of lungs taking in oxygen and taking it back out without any one of us thinking about doing it. 
It's glorious. It's designed. We can see the design. You should see the design. It should work. But it doesn't. Babies don't always get enough food from mom. Grass dies and is taken over by thistles and foxtail. And suddenly, the heart does stop beating. Suddenly, lungs don't work. So we see design and corruption. And so now, what does God do after the fall? This theater that he made and this audience that he made for himself has fallen into disrepair. It's fallen into ruins. His audience has lost their attention and wandered off into foolish myths. They've started to believe lies. And the theater is a pile of rubble. Had God, at that moment, after the fall, decided to throw everything into outer darkness, into destruction, into the lake of fire, he would have been perfectly just in doing that. There would have been no injustice in God had he condemned it all at that moment. Had God thrown every last seed of Adam and Eve into the lake of fire, the only thing that we could complain about is that God is just. Objection, Your Honor. This courtroom seems to be working by the rules of justice. I object. That makes no sense. God would have been perfectly just to cast it all into the lake of fire as it should have been if we are going to work with justice, if we are going to work by merit and rather than by mercy. But God clearly was not willing to discard his creation. Rather than throwing it all in the garbage and starting over, or throwing it all in the garbage and leaving an empty space, rather, in his inscrutable wisdom, He had a way from before the foundation of time, before the fall even occurred, he had a plan for restoring paradise. Before there was a creation, there was a covenant of redemption inside the three members of the Trinity. All three members, Father, Son, and Spirit, had decided to make things new, to reconcile all things under the feet of King Jesus so that he could take his inheritance and have dominion over it like Adam was supposed to do in the garden. And then, once he has done his mission, he returns it back in perfected form to his father. So before there were people to sin or a creation to groan under the curse of that sin, there was a book of life in which the father had written the individual names of all those given to the son so that the son could start his redemptive work and intercede perfectly for those people and return them to the father. And in the midst of it all is a Holy Spirit who breathes life into the breast of these people, who takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh so that they could start living the way they were designed to, which is for the glory of God. And if we think about all of this in the grand scale of redemption and everything to the glory of God, isn't that a far more interesting and biblically accurate story then reducing the gospel to, well, when I tell a lie, Jesus gets sad. So say sorry so that when God destroys everything, I can fly off to heaven. The story, th- that is true in a primitive sense. But the story is so much fuller than that. It's so much more earthy than that. The story of redemption is a story of intrigue, of romance, of surprising turns, unexpected heroes. And then these gigantic, larger-than-life, impressive figures who do so much, they do all these spectacular things, and then they disappoint us in the most spectacular ways. And at the center of it all, pointing to the center 
comes the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is intent on taking back all rule and authority and power and dominion. And so just like Adam was given his bride as a helpmate, so was the second Adam, Christ. God gave Eve to Adam, and he gave the church to Christ. And the reason the church is called the bride is because we are. There's a good reason for it. We're called a bride because we are a bride. We are to serve alongside our husband as he takes his rule, his authority, his power, and his dominion back and restores both the audience and the theater, not just back to what they were, but to an eternally perfected and glorified form of what they were. And so this is why Ephesians 5, for example, is so careful to point out that as real and as potent and as this-worldly, as earthy as marriage is, marriage is a symbol. It's a symbol of Christ and his bride. And so there's really no way to understand Christ and the church without first understanding marriage, and there's no way to understand your marriage apart from what it's pointing to. Marriage is not an end in itself. Marriage points symbolically to its end. And so that's why the next three sermons in this series are going to look at manhood, womanhood, and family. Because we can't understand masculinity or femininity if we don't know what the church is for, and vice versa. And just like God put Adam to sleep under a tree and broke him open so that he could remove a bride out of his side, so he sends Christ into the world nails him to a tree and breaks him open so that he could take a bride out of his side. And we've been seeing as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew how faithfully and how obediently Jesus Christ retraces all the steps of those who have gone before him. And when he covers these steps, he does it right. He does it perfectly. Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Isaac. He is the true and better Moses. This morning in Sunday school, I talked about theologically rich old hymns, and then I corrected myself that there's new ones like that. But is there a more theologically rich song than the true and the better? That song is deep with meaning. So Christ has his bride, the church at his side, and rather than being sad that we don't get to be in charge, that we don't get to run the show, we should be overjoyed that we get the glory that only a bride can get. And remember, if the moon were to curse the sun, it would get less glory, not more. And that brings us to our portion that I want to read this morning. In Ephesians 1, turn there. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. And as always, I'll ask you to stand as we read God's word. And these are the inerrant words of God. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And may God bless the reading of his word. So in the short summary 
of the history of redemption, Paul moves from the Father of glory to the church. He moves from top to bottom. And he prays that this glory may flow down from God into and through the church, giving her wisdom, revelation, and knowledge, verse 17. And in verse 18, he wants the church to know the hope to which she has been called, what her inheritance is, and the immeasurable power and greatness of God toward all those who believe, verse 19. And so following a correct understanding of reality, Paul starts at the top, he starts with God, and he works his way down. He's understanding it properly. And in verse 20, he speaks of the work of Christ being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. And this should sound familiar if you've been paying attention to your Bible reading. This is an echo of Psalm 110.1, which is, of course, God's favorite Bible verse, at least in the sense that Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted Bible verse in the Bible. Okay? It's a controlling theme. And it gives an overarching summary of the purpose and the direction and the meaning of history. But the thing I really want to consider here in this morning's passage is verses 22 and 23, which says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So all things have been given from the Father to the Son as an inheritance. Christ is head over all things, and then God also gives Christ to be head over the church. And it is true that the church was given to Christ just as a bride is given to her husband. But it's true just as much, but in a different sense, that the husband is given to the bride. That the church is given, or that Christ is given to the church. And how could the church function without a head to lead and protect and guide her? We see here, as in all of scripture, that Christ is the head of all. And God gives his head to the church for their mutual benefit and mutual glory. And so the bond between these two, between Christ and his bride, between Christ Jesus and the church, is so close that it says that we as the church are the body of Christ. And when we look, again, further down, uh, at how marriage symbolizes this, we can think of the one flesh union that exists between a husband and his wife. The union is so sacred, so potent, and so significant that it creates a new reality. Okay? And I think we don't see how potent marriage is and how important marriage is as a very result of that. Marriage creates a new reality. Before 2001, there was someone called Matt Plett, and there was someone called Tanya Barkman. And those two people still exist. But what happened on our wedding day, and in all of your wedding days, is something new gets created. The Pletts came into existence. Okay? A new creational reality. Marriage is potent, and it points us to our ultimate union with Christ. And if you separate a head from a body, what you have is death. And this is why God hates divorce, because it's death. It's symbolizing Christ and the church being pulled apart. There's a tragedy that's happening here. And when the church goes astray, when she divorces herself from her head, when she says, I'm no longer happy to be the moon reflecting the glory of the sun, I'm going to go do my own thing, it leads to apostasy and unbelief, like Hosea 4. And so if the body is separated from her head, you no longer have a body. That is, a church no longer exists. You have a social club of spiritually dead people 
on their way to the second death. Healthy churches are a big deal. Churches that are contagious for the glory of God are a big deal. Verse 23 says that the church is filled by Christ and we in turn are to go and fill the world. And our first parents were to be fruitful and to go fill the earth. And our mission is to succeed where they have failed. The church now fills creation on behalf of Christ. And this is done in many ways. But two of the most obvious ways that the church does this is by encouraging Christian families to raise Christian kids. And the other has to do with missions and world evangelism. And so hopefully we're starting to see a picture coming together of what the church is. The church is a bride whose job it is to take her husband's name and then to take her part in accomplishing her husband's task of taking dominion. The church is most glorious when she happily accepts and sees the glory of her place in creation and finds joy in serving Christ. This isn't a subservient or lackluster thing at all. I think we'll get into it as we move into the series further. But there is glory in being a bride. And just think about this, how accurately, whether we do this intentionally or not, and probably mostly we don't do it intentionally, but at a wedding, where is all the attention focused? On the beauty of the bride. And I would say that's correct. We do that by nature because we're created in the image of God. That is a picture. A woman is glorious. Yes, she takes her husband's name. Yes, he is to lead the family. But she is the glory of the glory. That's the church. This isn't a subservient role because Christ is our head. This is a glorious role when we know what we're here for. And so when we as Christians or churches start to think that we can do things our own way or that we're the captain of our own ship, our glory is not elevated but taken away. And once we understand what the church is, there are certain things about church life that start to make more sense. In Greek, the church is called the ecclesia or the called out ones. And so in this sense, the church is made up of all those whom God has called out of the world, whom he has saved by the gospel. And so the universal church, in this sense, is all these people across all time and all geography. So this is just as true for a first century Roman Empire Christian as it is for uh, us today and every point in between. But then, of course, there are local expressions of the church that exist in concrete, tangible form, and they are scattered all across the globe. And both are important. You cannot claim to be part of one if you are not also part of the other. So you cannot claim to be part of the universal church and yet refuse to participate in a local church. The church father, Cyprian, has famously said that you cannot have God as your father if you refuse to have the church as your mother. This is a package deal. Okay? There are no churchless Christians unless you are actively looking to plug into one. Likewise, if you're part of a local church, you must see yourself as part of the universal church. Otherwise, you're not in a church, you're in a sect or in a cult. And this is why I think one of the benefits of saying something like the Apostles' Creed is, isn't it incredible? If you would go to the second century anywhere in the Roman Empire, you'd have that in common with those Christians. <laughs> That's remarkable. That is what the universal big Catholic church is all about. We share a common faith and a common savior. And so there's true unity in this universal church despite its local expressions. And when we think about the big picture of the church, this does involve a level of grace and understanding that there are Christian traditions outside of your own. 
And there may be differences here and there with other Christians, but provided that both are united to Christ, we're also united to one another. And so yes, there are legitimate differences because of sin and because of our limited ability to understand and apply scripture. This is true. But if we are all trusting in the Lord Jesus, we are all going to enjoy the new creation with him. And so we better start learning how to be gracious and get along now, uh, even despite differences. The word that the New Testament uses uh, for the church carries over from the Old Testament people where they are called the assembly. So the very nature of the church came into focus uh, in recent times with technology. And I don't know if you guys remember, there was an interesting period of time about two years ago that lasted for a while. Uh, and it forced people to think about what is the nature of the church. And I'm not going to pick on anyone. It was a difficult time and we all were trying to categorize and, and think of competing things and how do we put this all together in a confusing time. But there's one thing that has come out as a result of technology and which was amplified in particular periods that I want to push back against and that's the idea about online church. There is no such thing as online church. Church is embodied. Church is personal. It involves real life people, real life relationships. And so we can be grateful for technology. Sometimes someone is homesick and, and that's how they can uh, plug in in some sense is watch a sermon and watch music and this is good so we don't need to uh, rid ourselves of technology by any stretch but that's not a replacement for actually being with God's people Hebrews 10 tells us not to give up meeting together because the church is the assembled people of God who meet for worship and this happens in a physical embodied earthy form and again how many people and I think we could all probably think of a few Let's not name names, but uh, at least not out loud. But we can probably all think of people who still aren't back in church. They're still watching online. They're still not plugged in with a community of believers who's going to help them be accountable. It's too easy to stay at home in your jammies and turn on YouTube. But that's not the vision God gives us. God gives us a vision of being in community with each other, in contact with each other, embodied, encouraging each other. But there's other ways that we give on, up on this. How many people give up meeting with the saints and worshiping the triune God who has summoned us together every seven days because they're more comfortable at home? Or maybe we decided to do waffles this morning, right? Or, well, there's a sporting event, so I can't go to church, okay? And I'm, again, not saying we have to be here every single Sunday and there's no ever an excuse to be away. That's not what I'm saying. But our habits teach ourselves and they teach our children. And they teach your family about the importance of corporate worship. And so husbands and dads, one of your most serious and important callings is to teach your families in both word and action that all of life does orbit around the sun. Teach your family to prioritize worshiping the Lord with the Lord's people in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Our actions are always teaching. And the actions we take on Sunday morning is no exception. Are we setting a pattern that corporate worship is essential? Or are we setting a pattern that says, yeah, we'll go to church as long as there's nothing important happening on Sunday morning? There's a difference. Another way we can look at the church, what are the marks of a true church? Well, one ministry that maybe many of you might be familiar with is Nine Marks, which is uh, Mark Dever started this ministry. It's kind of inside the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's driving at encouraging healthy churches. And nine marks is so-called because they give nine marks of a healthy church. And those nine marks are expository preaching, biblical theology, gospel proclamation, personal conversion, 
evangelism, church membership, church discipline, discipleship, and biblical leadership. And I think all of us should agree with every one of those nine marks, but I think they can be boiled down to fewer and simpler. One of the Reformation emphases on healthy churches centered around three things. One was a sound preaching of the Word of God. The second was the correct administration of the sacraments, which we understand to be baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. If you have those three things, you have a church. You can have an unhealthy church that is really a true church, if it's not warm enough or the music isn't good or, or the preacher's boring, uh, you can still have a true church. But if you take away biblical preaching, if you take away church discipline, or you take away the sacraments, you don't have a church. However warm and however inviting it is, you have a social club. The author of the classic book, Moby Dick, a man by the name of Herman Melville, has said with a good deal of accuracy, in my mind, that the pulpit leads the world. Is he overstating that? Herman Melville says that the pulpit leads the world, like a captain leads his ship. And if you ever want to read a great book, read Moby Dick. It's actually kind of like the Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory for life. So Melville likens the church to the bow of a ship, leading the way. And so there is actually a real sense in which the world around us can serve as a report card for how the church is doing. If you want to see how the church is doing, look at the world around it. And I wouldn't make this a hard and fast rule, especially in places that are newly evangelized and the church is just making her start. But there is a pattern that societies do tend to actually follow the church into apostasy. And when the church goes astray, unbelievers love to use that and they hide their guilt behind apostate churches. Okay, so two quick examples from our context is uh, our country attempted to redefine marriage in 2005 when it blessed uh, same-sex or so-called same-sex marriage. But you know what was happening before 2005? The United Church of Canada put her seal of approval on same-sex marriage. Okay? The state followed the church into apostasy. We have all kinds of gender confusion in our day today where people are attempting to change genders and so forth. But you know what was happening in the 1970s? Liberal churches were ordaining women into church eldership. Okay? The church led the society into gender confusion. And so I do think Melville is onto something. I think the church is leading, for good or for ill. <clears throat> we know that for the sake of a few righteous people, God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, what will we do if the church is no longer a faithful witness in society? Or worse yet, if she actually leads the charge on apostasy by compromising and giving moral permission to ungodliness. And we as the church have Christ as our husband. We don't have the spirit of the age as our husband, or at least we shouldn't. Churches and individual Christians always submit to someone. We either submit to Christ, which means doctrinal, doctrinal and moral compromise with the spirit of the age are off the table. They're not even things we consider. And so I don't think it's a mistake when the Bible uses the words idolatry and adultery almost interchangeably when looking at the disobedience of God's people. Idolatry is serving something or someone other than Christ. And adultery is giving yourself sexually to someone to whom you don't belong. You are joining yourself to somebody that you are not legitimately joined to. That's idolatry. That's why in what Don read in Hosea, the adultery 
or the idolatry of the people is compared to whoredom. It's compared to whoredom. It's the same thing. You are joining yourself to someone who you do not legitimately belong to. And so we live in an age of deep compromise where even many Christians are far more impressed by the demands that the world is making on them than by the positive vision that Scripture lays out for us. And provided that Hervin Melville is onto something and that the pulpit does lead the world, when we think about our own place in our own local churches and the cultures that we create in local churches, I want to suggest that we will not find our way out of our current confusions unless or until God is pleased to make his churches and his pulpits thunder once again. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul tells Timothy, he says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul calls the church the household of God. And this pushes on the marriage symbolism a little further and teaches us more things about the nature of the church. The household language shows the closeness of those who have been called out of the world into the church. We become brothers and sisters, united around a common head. And so the sacraments or the ordinances also follow a household pattern. Baptism serves as our initiation into the family of God. And so think of it like I saw a video a couple of weeks ago of this little boy who invited his whole kindergarten class to a court when the judge would declare he has been officially adopted by his parents. And it was just the coolest thing. This little four-year-old boy with all these little four-year-olds around there all weeping for joy that their friend had a mom and a dad now. That's your baptism, Christian. That's your baptism. God is saying, I adopted you. You're taking the family name. You're living in the family house. You belong here. That's your baptism. There's a household theme to baptism. So baptism is the front door that people enter through to get into the household because baptism symbolizes conversion. And likewise, communion or the Lord's Supper serves as an ongoing form of community or fellowship in the family. This is the family meal that God feeds to us to remind us of his provision and our union with him and with each other. And this is why baptism logically must go before communion. You have to enter the house before you get to sit down at the table. You must walk through the front door before you get to the dining room. So baptism is initiation into the family. Communion is ongoing fellowship in the family. It keeps us in communion with each other. And so seeing this in terms of a household also starts to make sense of things like church discipline. In a family where everything is going well, things just seem to operate on their own. But they don't operate on their own. If you have a family where everything goes, where there's no rules, soon you'll find out that nobody is doing well. I always like to think of the example, you walk into a house and the four-year-old is clearly the head of the home. I can promise you, nobody is happy in that home, least of all the four-year-old. <laughs> he's not happy because he gets to be in charge because he's taking a job that's far too big for him. Okay? We need things to be ordered well and according to the design of headship if things are going to stay in fellowship, if they're going to be happy. And so according to the pattern of Matthew 18, discipline starts with very low pressure that slowly increases only as there is need. First, try to solve the matter yourself. If, some, if there's a community this size, people are going to bump into each other occasionally and that's to be expected. But the first level of church discipline is just go say sorry. It's not tough. Go say sorry. Go talk it out. Figure it out. If there's been a miscommunication or someone's mistreated someone, figure it out among yourselves. But if that doesn't work, then maybe talk to someone, maybe one or two others, to try to help smooth it over. 
And it's only if that is unsuccessful that this goes up to the church to deal with. And if it gets to that point, the goal of church discipline is always restoration. It's always correction. And that's why there's actually only one sin for which anyone should ever ultimately be disciplined by the church. Every sin should and can be forgiven by God and the church, barring one, and that is impenitence. A refusal to repent for what you have just done is the only reason anyone should ever be disciplined by a church. Every other sin, tax evasion, anger, a fist fight in the parking lot, adultery, homosexual lust, you name it, is all forgiven if there's repentance. But if there is a stubborn refusal to acknowledge the sin or to work with it, this is the only case in which it steps further. The final step that the church has is excommunication. And this is a serious but biblical necessary step if we're going to preserve the unity of God's household. A number of years back, I was in conversation with a guy who was complaining about hypocrisy in the church. And he was, you know, listing all these hypocritical people in the church and the church did nothing with them. And it wasn't 10 minutes later he was complaining about church discipline and and how bad it was. And I'm thinking, you can't have it both ways. (laughs) Discipline is the church's way of dealing with unrepentant hypocrisy. You can't have it both ways. Discipline is meant to stamp the hypocrisy out. And the final and most severe step, as I mentioned, of church discipline uh, that the church has at her disposal is excommunication, which is removing someone from the church with the understanding that as best as we can tell, this person is not a believer. Of course, we don't know that with certainty. It's a provisional guess based, or it's more than a guess, but it's based on uh, how these conversations have gone. But they may be a believer. Perhaps they're going, a Christian who, like David, goes through a prolonged season of sin and is going to be brought back by a painful process. So we need to keep in mind, even in these cases, our judgments are always tentative and they can only be based on what we see. We can't see the heart. But think of the name excommunication. Is it one of those words that we don't even think about? Excommunication. It means they are no longer communing with the church. The union is gone, and with it, so goes the literal communion meal. And this is why we warn people when we take communion here at Trinity to just pass it by if you're currently under discipline with another church. We don't want to uh, disregard another church's determination on a matter. Communion is a sign that we're actually in fellowship and that knowing sin is being dealt with. And this shows also that although we don't have a magical view of the sacraments, they are clearly more than just bare memorials. Baptism and the Lord's Supper don't automatically do things, but spiritually Christ feeds and strengthens us through them. And so to be cut off from these things is something that is serious. We should think about it. Paul also describes the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. Many books have been written on the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God. And these things are related, but they're not identical. The kingdom of God is anywhere that Christ's rule and reign have been made, uh, recognized and made visible. So the kingdom of God can clearly be present in churches, in families, in communities, in corporate boardrooms, universities, hospitals, and parliaments of nations. God's uh, rule and reign can be made visible in any of those places and more. So think of the church more like a power plant at the center of the kingdom, fueling and supporting all the operations. She's not doing them herself, but she's fueling and commissioning and sending. And so God has been pleased to give his word and his law to the church, and so she instructs farmers and plowboys and carpenters and blacksmiths and kings and strengthens them as they do their work. She teaches and instructs and sends people to go do their job in creation. 
So the church is like the center of the town square, the center of the kingdom. And this has quite literally been true in classic architecture where the steeple church is physically at the center of the town as it ought to be. This symbolically communicates something important. The church is at the center. This is the heartbeat and it sends people out into their callings and into their vocations. So the church is not to take the place of mothers and fathers. The church is not supposed to run the state, but she is to instruct people from God's word on how they are to faithfully do their work. She's the pillar and buttress, supporting and holding the rest of society up as they orient themselves correctly around God's law word. And when this breaks down, as it very clearly has in our time, we quickly see that a society that does not have Christ at its center quickly devolves into chaos, as in fact it is. Okay? And so even surface things, if you like freedom of speech, if you like just weights and measures, if you like the rule of law, you better hope that the gospel does not get forgotten because none of those things survive apostasy. Okay? Show me where your freedom of speech is in a Muslim-dominated country. Show me where capitalism survives atheism. It does not happen. Okay? Christ is the center or there is chaos, and it devolves. So whether we live in times like the early church that was at the very front edge of Christianizing the Roman Empire despite massive persecution, or whether we live in times like the Reformation or the Great Awakening on the American colonies when it seems like God was very rapidly putting finishing touches on his work, our instructions actually don't change based on circumstance. We're to stay at our task, stay the course, speak pr truth courageously with the understanding that this truth isn't confined to just the church, but it is for every square inch of creation. And our job is to make Christ known everywhere. It's through the church that Christ is doing his work in between his first and his second comings. And so this helps us to make sense out of a theme that has confused some, which is who's really the king of the kingdom? Is it the son or is it the father? Because the father gives it to the son, but then at the end the son gives it to the father in 1 Corinthians 15. So why does God entrust all things to Christ and then Christ gives it all back to the father? Who is the head of this kingdom, the father or the son? In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, this is Christ, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority. And this takes us right back to the garden where we started. Adam was given the world to have dominion over. And instead of leading his wife, he followed her into disobedience, thus losing his dominion. And when Christ, the second Adam, was given the world to have dominion over, he successfully leads his bride into greater obedience, thus securing their joint dominion for eternity. So it's through the church, through evangelism, through mission, through preaching God's law and his gospel that Christ is destroying every rule and power. And once this task is completed, Christ returns and gives the completed work back to his father. And the father says, look at you, you passed. You took five talents and you turned it into 21. This is incredible. Okay, Jesus passes the test that Adam has failed. And so there is no confusion or contradiction here. Christ is leading his bride faithfully to the final consummation where he also leads us into the rest of the Father's eternal approval. So now you're thinking this all sounds right and it sounds biblical. It sounds maybe beautiful even. I think it does. But you know what? Here's what you failed to address, Matt. Have you looked around? The church is a hot mess. And I would agree. Yes, the church is a hot mess. But this is where we're reminded again. Go back to Hosea. 
it is a beautiful story of God's purposes for his people, for his bride. God tells the prophet Hosea to go live out an actual role play. He says, go find a whore and marry a whore. And she's going to give you some children. And you're going to love those children. But you know what she's going to do? She's going to commit adultery on you. And she's going to end up at a whore auction where she deserves to be. And you will have every right to say, stay away from me. I don't want you. But you know what Hosea does? He sees his wife up there being bid for, for money. And the auctioneer, no doubt, is saying, you know, five talents, ten talents. Do I hear hear twelve talents? This man's wife is being treated like a piece of meat because she treated herself like a piece of meat. She's an adulteress. She deserves to be there. And what does Hosea do? He says, I love her. That woman is lovely. And he bids so high that she comes straight back to him. That's what happens when the church is a hot mess. God would be every bit justified to stay away with all of you. But he's not. He buys us back. He loves us. And he loves us not because we're beautiful. Because guess what? We're not. He buys us back to make us lovely. Okay? His love makes us lovely. He doesn't love us because we're first lovely. His love transforms us into something beautiful. And so if the picture that the Bible paints of how the church ought to operate doesn't match our experience, it won't. But then we remember that there's grace. And remember the story of Hosea and Gomer and how intent God is on loving his bride until she is actually beautiful. And so let's keep that in mind as well as we are gracious and we, as we think about things in the church or people in the church who frustrate us. Read the book of Hosea this week. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for saving a mass of humanity. Thank you for putting us together, not just as uh, isolated individual people out to face the world on our own, but you've put us in communion with each other. You've put us in community in your church, and you do this in local bodies, but you also bind us together with believers who have gone before us or who have come from different places than us. Lord, and I thank you for the glory of your church. I thank you for the way it reflects your glory to put your love and approval and your stamp uh, of redemption on us. Lord, I pray that we would have a renewed vision for how central the church is to your purposes for this world. That we are uh, to make your rule and your reign and your lordship and your mercy known wherever our vocations, wherever our lives take us. Lord, and I pray that would be contagious for each one here this morning. I pray that we would have a taste of your glory, that we would have a zeal for your glory, that it would be expressed in this local church and then also each Sunday as we go back our regular lives, that we would extend your rule and reign there as well, that we would see the glory that comes from serving you, from being your bride, from being in union with you. Lord, and I pray that we would not take that role lightly. Pray that it would fill us with grace, with gratitude for who you are and what you have called us to be. We thank you now, Lord, and we give you all praise. Amen. stand as we sing.
gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to Him. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
God has been pleased to redeem a mass of humanity to give as an inheritance to his son. Scripture speaks of this group as the church, the assembly, the body, and as the bride of Christ. The first Adam and his bride failed in their probation, casting creation into ruin and curse. The second Adam has taken a bride to himself as he passes his probation. The second Adam does not shrug off his headship and his strength, but invests it fully into the welfare of his bride. Even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful to us, entrusting us to the affairs of his household until he returns. To be so closely united to Christ that we are called his body and his bride is a heavy joy that we must take seriously. A faithful steward and a virtuous wife will seek to honor their head in all they do. So our charge is to see our mission as a church in light of the headship of Christ. We are his body and we are to do his work as an extension and a support of his work. As individual members and as a corporate body, let us consider ways to make Christ known in the world so filled with his grace that it pours out through us and fills creation. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And go in peace.